Before the show starts, several of our listeners have been curious about the work I do at OnSite. So I wanted to give you a quick glimpse into what I get to be a part of. OnSite's an emotional health retreat center on a beautiful 250-acre ranch just outside of Nashville. We've got some of the best minds in the therapeutic space that come and create a safe space, honestly, for people just to reconnect to who they are and who they're becoming. And if you want to learn more, you can visit OnSiteWorkshops.com or follow us on Instagram and socials at, at @OnSiteWorkshops. The work y'all are doing there is so important, and I feel so grateful that I've gotten to experience it firsthand. I really hope everyone gets to experience this sort of healing because we're all so deserving of it. Thanks, my friend. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the show. You have to leave the garden and get wounded. Mm -hmm. So as you know, the, the English word innocent means unwounded. You can't remain innocent. There was one poet that said, one learns one's truth at the price of one's innocence. Maybe, maybe I quote that in Falling Upward. I don't know. I quoted it. It's, one learns one's truth. And people who won't let go of their innocence remain very rigid. Yeah. Un untruthful people, they don't know they're untruthful. But there's just whole parts of themselves they can't embrace. So whatever I was embracing at six or seven, I'd tell little Dickie, that's what I was called. When I go back to Kansas, I'm not Richard, I'm Dickie, because uh, my father was Richard. Don't forget it, but I had to forget it. Hey guys, I'm Miles. And I'm Ruthie. And welcome to the Unspoken Podcast, where we believe that saying the unsaid may be the hardest, but one of the most important things we can ever do. Yes. Our authentic self is the best gift that we have to offer this world. But sadly, we live in this culture that tells us that we should hide it. So we would love for you to join us and listen along. And we hope that you might find connection and healing in the courage that no important words go unspoken. Make up fake love, make them all laugh Someone, someone, take off your mask It's nice to me Today on the podcast, we welcome Father Richard Rohr. Father Rohr is a Franciscan priest and founder of the Center of Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, where he also serves as the academic dean of the Living School for Action and Contemplation. He is a globally recognized spiritual teacher whose work is grounded in Christian mysticism, practices of contemplation, and compassion for the marginalized. Father Richard is the author of many books, including the bestsellers Falling Upward, The Naked Now, Breathing Underwater, The Divine Dance, and most recently, The Universal Christ. His work has recently been featured again in Oprah's Super Soul Sunday and also in the New York Times. Wow, this this conversation with Father Rohr was a bucket list for me. He's uh, he is one of my favorite thinkers in the spiritual realm, and he both he did what he does. It's layered, it's complex, and yet it's simple and clear, and it's beautiful. We we let this one go a little long because when do you get to sit with a guy like this? So he challenged me. Uh, there were a lot of things I aligned with, and there were a lot of things that, that just made me think in, in a beautiful way. But the one thing you can't argue about this man is he's humble, and he's kind, and he's inclusive. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Welcome, Father Richard Rohr.
Richard, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm deeply touched. I had heard your name for years from my mom. I grew really? up in St. Francisville, Louisiana. Oh my and goodness. she had been to hear you speak before. There, yes. yes. Oh, she told me <laughs> ages ago. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, your message has really been a beautiful journey for me particularly like I years ago walked away from the church completely and I got to visit miles um, has this beautiful center called onsite where people go. It's like an emotional wellness place. You go away, Mm. you turn in your phone. You're not allowed to tell anyone what you do for a living and it's all experiential therapy. Wow. It's an, it honestly, is that needed good for you. It's beautiful. It it was pretty life changing for me. Um, You watch people lose like, I mean, people would look 10 years younger because they were able to speak their truth and release all of this trauma that they've been carrying around in their body and in their heart. And anyway, at the very end of it, they talk about how important spirituality is. And they're like, no agenda at all. It's just spirituality. And I had felt so burned. You know, I love when you talk about the thing you've just left is what you're the harshest on. And that's exactly where I was. I was very ugly and judgmental about Christianity. You almost have to be to have the courage to leave anything. Yeah. You have to judge it harshly. And I was (laughs) fully in that mode. And I asked her, my teacher who had become just, I treasured her teaching so much, the lady who led us that week, um, if she had a book that she recommended. And I remember specifically saying, no, Jesus. I don't want to hear about Jesus. I am. I was just angry at the time. And yeah. she goes, well, there is Jesus, but it's a different type of Jesus than probably the Jesus you've been hearing about. Mm. And there's a book called Falling Upward. Oh. And yeah. so anyway, I thought that was really beautiful. And she wouldn't identify as a Christian. And she recommended that book. And I remember starting it and I, I didn't quite have the lens to understand it. Like I was put, tipping my toe yes. back in and it didn't quite understand yet. And I've had the beautiful opportunity to go to your last two widen okay. retreats. And again, it I knew that it sounded like so inclusive and true, but just in the last six months, I've had these really beautiful awakening moments, and I've gone back and mm. read what you've written, and um, oh, I'm it's, honored. Thank it's you. changed everything. Yeah, and it's it's everything I've been learning in my quiet and in nature. You're saying the same thing <laughs> mm-hmm. that I just keep hearing, that inclusive for everyone message. So what an honor. Thank you for letting us be here with you. You make me happy. Thank you. You make me happy. (laughs) Yeah, I've got a a beautiful journey too with a lot of your work and words. Um, Got an opportunity to go to uh, treatment years ago myself um, and kind of had a a breakdown of of belief system and old thoughts and um, what I've learned to call now. I think it was just human school. It wasn't really rehab at all. It just taught me how to be more humane to myself and and others. Uh, But I was introduced, as a lot of people in kind of recovery-type communities are, to your work. I don't know if you know you have a big following among that community, um, particularly like 12-step communities and others. 12-step, I know, from breathing underwater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was one of my first intros. But but I've had an interesting journey, too, which I'm sure we'll get into as we flow into this conversation. But I left and, and came back, but I've really had this conflicted tension with trying to find my, and I do identify as a Christian, but I have way more questions and answers. And I've struggled to find my place. And boy, did this new work um, bring something together. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I got it. 
I walked away from Wyden feeling very affirmed. And after chapter three, when you say we have to accept that we're already accepted, that was one of the first times I think I slept through the night feeling really? grace really Aww. deep in my soul. Oh, my goodness. So we're Thanks. excited to be very here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Wow. We get to sit with a lot of people who are doing great things in the world and hear more about their truth and why they felt like now was the time to speak mm-hmm. it. And so for you, you meant you shared this with us. You feel like this is some of the most important work you've done to date. And why do you think like now is the time to share this truth? You know, I don't know if it's the the new paradigms that science has given to us, that astrophysics and the Hubble telescope, to make it very specific. We just uh, have been given a vision of wholeness that we can't deny, and we mm-hmm. have to have a God at least as big as that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, And when God ends up being petty or tyrannical or tribal, mm-hmm. It's just everything in it says this can't be true. <laughs> I mean, we're one of the three monotheistic religions for those who uh, call themselves Christian. And that usually is defined as there is one God who made all things. Well, that's monotheism. But if there's one God who made all things, then everything is going to carry the same DNA, hmm. uh, just to carry through the human metaphor. So there's a longing for wholeness. For honesty, maybe that's even a better word, that that we're able to see now, maybe it's the evolution of consciousness, that we weren't honest about the immensity of infinite love. And we ended up creating, in effect, a very stingy God. I don't know what other... Who didn't seem to care about 99% of what God created. (laughs) That's what it comes down to, you know? If our stingy salvation theories uh, are, are true the way people have imagined them, then God is a throwaway God who, who doesn't seem to really, I know we sing this in our songs, God is merciful, God is compassionate, God is all loving, but all the evidence is the contrary. <laughs> God is not very loving at all. and. I remember, forgive me, I'm a Catholic, so I know when I'd hear <laughs> evangelical songs, I was always shocked. There were two words that were in your, uh, I, I don't know if you were both yeah. evangelical. I mean, yeah. Wrath. I said, why are they always singing about wrath? <laughs> <laughs> and blood. The blood, the blood. It the blood just, of the lamb, yeah. Wow. It was just a language that the first five centuries of the church wouldn't even identify with. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You'd see just how we morphed into a very different sense of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, being given, I hope, honest Christian history, honest church history, mm-hmm. which is what the Franciscans taught us, a self-critical history, has freed me in so many ways You know, to recognize that's a historical accident. And uh, again, not to be insulting, not to be accusing, but once you've descended into a version of Christianity that some call slaveholder religion, Mm -hmm. and that's the southern part of the United States, we just got to be honest. (laughs) Uh, You don't have anything even coming close to the universe of Jesus. (laughs) 
It's just, it, it has descended so far. <laughs> and that this is the very group that calls itself the most Christian. Huh? Mm. Right. It's almost like, are you trying to fool yourself? Now, I'm not talking about individuals, because I honestly have met some of the kindest, sweetest people in the southern part of the United States. But that particular version is what got exported to the rest of the world in the name of Christianity. Huh? And as a Catholic, which, of course, the word Catholic means universal, not that we did it very well, but we did in the first centuries take that name to ourselves because we thought it was a universal religion, not a tribal religion. Now, we became tribal, too. I've often said, once you say Roman Catholic, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> Catholic by itself stands very well. And no one should be ashamed of it, which is why it's in the creeds of the church. But uh, that's history. But history can be very liberating if, if you recognize how this happened, how that happened, and how most of us, including Roman Catholic, are the victims of history, you know? And evangelicalism is a victim of really the Civil War, <laughs> uh, which had to create a form of Christianity that was extremely tribal and extremely exclusionary, uh, who doesn't belong, who isn't saved. So you didn't expect or want an answer that long, but uh, we just don't have time for a religion based on exclusion. Yes. If God is infinite love, which my previous book on the Trinity tried to validate, then... Uh, we got to live in a very different universe mm. and not whittle divine love down to finite categories that we can control and we can dole out to those that we think are worthy. And that's the other thing. I mean, because I'm a Catholic, I was raised or taught the whole 2,000-year tradition. And one, another thing you see is that what evil is was pretty much different century to century, culture to culture. Maybe you don't know, for example, that till the 11th century, usury, which is taking an interest on a loan, was excommunication from the church. Wow. I mean, now that's a different church right. than we have today. I'm not saying they've got the message 100% and we're 100% wrong. But you see that again and again. And then what arose in our lifetime were two issues. I'm not making a moral stance on these, but they are two issues that Jesus never talked about, gay marriage and homosexuality. Yes. Uh, uh, where did this come from as, as test cases? Never was. Right. And Jesus never talked about them once. So they can't be that central or that fundamental but uh, it's created what we call in America, rightly, culture wars. And the church has got identified with the culture wars instead of the gospel, in my opinion. Yeah. Which has gotten us to where we are today, which makes it, you feel like, ever so important to start to shift that paradigm. Is that why this feels like the most important work you've put out there and now is the time if ever, for people to hear it? Or do you feel like personally for you, you've gotten to a place where you're ready to talk about it? Well, part of it is my age. As you know, I turned 76 yesterday. Happy birthday. So, <laughs> Happy I, uh, birthday. 
just at my age, you have nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if you don't say it now, if the elders don't say it after their years of experience, uh, the youngers can't have the courage or the confidence to say it. Mm. Yeah. There's that tremendous fear. Well, I must be stupid or I must be wrong. Or, And we are a society without elders, which my years in men's work was one of our major themes. We have elderly people. We don't have many elders. Right. Mm. I mean, witness Washington, D.C. Yes. And I'm not, this is not a partisan statement. Both parties yes. <laughs> are not led by elders for the most part. Mm. So we're in trouble. I don't know how you pass on wisdom or wholeness when it's people who don't represent wholeness talking about it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And as much as I, I hope that we are in a season of where elders can, can speak, how do we get our generation to, to listen? Yeah. And the, which I think you, the framework of a lot of this spoke to me specifically, uh, but I know just the word universal itself is going to threaten a yes. lot of others. Yes. And I, I'm curious, I know we've got a lot of ways we could unpack this, but I'm curious how, if this feels as true as it does to me, how can we position this so that it's not the new way, meaning yes. that others don't have it right? Well, wrong, yeah. Well, that's you asked the question in a very wise way. You, you know I call this dualistic thinking this tendency to do exactly that, to create enemies, either or, all or nothing thinking. It's, it's stinking thinking. <laughs> and it's the only uh, mind left in a debating society. It's, mm-hmm. It all depends on a win-lose frame. And when you've defined reality in terms of a win-lose frame, and we ourselves did, yes. in our infantile understandings of heaven and hell, So we bought into the whole thing of you're either a winner or a loser, and it's all or nothing. No room for the compassion of God to make up for our failure, which is the great doctrine of grace. I mean, it's the heart of the New Testament for me. If we don't get that, we don't get it. So um, I know the word is especially scary to people raised evangelical. In fact, over the years, and with the best of intentions, I'm sure, but they'll meet me in a hallway after a talk and say, are you an evangelist? Are you a universalist? (laughs) (laughs) And they think they've got me, you know, and I I always say too cleverly, I admit. Uh, Yeah, I'm a Catholic, you know. (laughs) That is our name, a universalist. So it wasn't a bad name in the first... 108, St. Ignatius of Antioch is traveling from Antioch and Syria across Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, into, through Greece and into Rome. And in village after village, 108, Jesus has only been dead 70 years. And he, all these people are owning this new Christian religion. And he says at one point in one of his letters, uh, this is going to be a Catholic religion a universal religion. And we grabbed that and took that to ourselves and even put it in the creed, uh, Mm -hmm. if you're familiar with the creed. So um, it isn't a shocking word for us so much. But once you had salvation theories that were very tightly drawn based on, I don't want to open a can of worms, but certain things that uh, 
like, you know, my chapter on why did Jesus die. Louis Franciscans never heard of the penal substitutionary atonement theory in the 13th century. Mm. He only got that after Calvin, and I'm not condemning Calvin, but uh, it's, it's a Johnny-come-lately theory. Mm. And yet uh, evangelicalism makes it one of their four pillars, yeah. pillars, my God, uh, it doesn't stand the test of orthodoxy. It really mm. doesn't. Now, I know that's shocking, but uh, again, it, it, if you're raised in that smaller tribe, and I'm not trying to be insulting to anybody, but don't let yourself be taken into either-or thinking, all-or-nothing thinking. Mm. And uh, what the prophets taught us is how to be self-critical. When any institution any nation state, any corporation, any ethnic group does not have a capacity for self-criticism. I'm going to make a bland, blanket statement. It will soon be idolatrous. Mm. Yes. That's certain. Yes. (laughs) It will soon be idolatrous, which the Jewish Hebrew scriptures called the only sin. The only was to worship something as God that is not God. Mm. Now, when our explanation of God or our explanation of salvation is God for us, uh, we're not worshiping God anymore. You know, it's, it's our own mind's understanding. So I love your name, Un- unspoken, unspoken. Yeah. yeah. See, that's the older tradition, yeah. uh, beginning with Dionysius. I hate to be name dropping, but <laughs> you've got to know there's a bigger history than Alabama and Mississippi. I'm not trying to put down those states. I have friends from there. But uh, they don't know about the theology of unsaying, of unknowing, of unlearning. Uh, One important distinction, which I love the way you're framing it, is you're saying, you're never saying they don't get it. You're saying we. Oh, I hope I'm saying that. I I better watch myself. (laughs) Yeah, we is really important because we are all in this together. You know, if we would have understood both sin and salvation in a, as a corporate phenomenon, that's one of the chapters of the yes. book, you know, that uh, my goodness is your goodness. Yes. And my guilt is your guilt. Mm. Once we carry this collectively, <laughs> and that salvation is God is saving history, God is saving society, God is saving humanity. Oh, yeah. And I think I say it in The Universal Christ, Once we whittle down the gospel to individual justification by individual faith, I don't think we have the gospel anymore. That's why we can have Christians who don't really love the world. Hmm. They just want to get out of the world. Hmm. They don't really love their neighbor. They want to get away from their neighbor into their own tribe. This is never going to save the world. it's too tiny. It's, it's well-disguised selfishness. And I've got to say it that strongly. This isn't big love. <laughs> and, and as you know, that's our corporate image now, that we're not very loving people. Yeah. I mean, how can so many Christians be openly racist? Yes. Openly sexist. <laughs> Openly homophobic, you know. There's always an acceptable group to hate. It's just infantile mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of the gospel. Yeah. 
And that doesn't mean each individual is. Again, I'm saying it's the corporate. It's the corporate that carries the stupidity. It's amazing how individuals, like I said, good friends I have in Mississippi and Alabama, but uh, I mean, go to the lynching museum and see where the majority of black people were lynched. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's pretty clear. It's in the states that most identify as Christian. Christian, 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 Christian. And they just lynch black people right and left. Mm -hmm. That's got to be called to account, you know? Yeah. And you've got to say the version of Christianity you were given, you're a good person, but the version of Christianity you were given was not so good. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know that takes tremendous humility to admit that. I've had to eat humble pie about Catholicism, up to this day with the pedophilia crisis. You know? So we sort of get used to scandals because we've been around for 2,000 years of crusades and inquisitions and uh, we know we're not perfect. You almost, you almost have to be a non-dual thinker to survive as a Catholic. <laughs> you can't pretend you're in some enclave of purity. And those later groups that thought they could claim an enclave of purity, made them create a very small gospel, mm. Right, seems to me. Mm. I love how you say, I've heard you say several times, we don't see the world as it is, we see it as we are. Oh, yes. And because we were taught, I, at least I was, and where I grew my faith system, I, I loved feeling special. Sure, I loved wouldn't. feeling like we have it figured out and those people don't. Don't, those poor slobs. Those poor people. And I believed in predestination. <laughs> yes. I believed um, in original sin. I yeah. called myself this depraved, You can blame us Catholics broken, for that. <laughs> <laughs> this depraved wretch, broken yeah. I sang songs like about me. being a wretch like me. <laughs> and I started crying so hard when I read what you wrote about and talking about the difference in original sin. And oh. then you talked about um, original blessing. Or original, uh, goodness, original goodness, original innocence. Yes. All three of them work, but yes. thank you. Yes, yeah. and I just, it touched me so much because when we start with that negative, I, mean, you, yep. I, yep. I won't do a good job saying what you said, no, but I just, it, fine. it was just, it's true. And, yes, like, it and then even in our culture as women, like we're taught, Self-love is this, you know, yeah. just being so vain. And I'm like, <laughs> the most loving thing I've ever done is coming back to that truth as the we mm. and understanding all of us are deserving of that beautiful, yeah. pure, yeah. We're, and we already have it. Already <laughs> it's have already, it. and I'm unwinding those with stories. the manufacturing yes, from it the was beginning. just installed <laughs> in me from yeah. get-go, and I chose all, all of these pieces, you know, and it... It just, it reframed those stories that were put on me that to unwind them, the sure. unknowing, the sure. un, and Very coming good. back to that truth for all of us. Like I didn't know until I went back and started reading. I'm like, why all of a sudden I <laughs> literally like kissing the plants in my house yes. and want to like and kiss they think all you're the new animals. Age now. Yeah, but you're I just, just a Christian. I just, <laughs> I like, I, it's yeah. just, it changed everything. Like everything. I can't see. Yeah. Which is what the gospel was meant to do, yeah. you know, and you know that. Yeah. 
But it's been so beautiful that unlearning and coming yeah. back to the we and not the yeah. me. And that me. my ego brings me back to me all the time. And I can be like, oh, <laughs> I see you. <laughs> and But that's not our whole place. Like our whole place is this beautiful, expansive for everyone and everything. Mm-hmm. And the way you talk about it in the universal Christ, it put these p- puzzle pieces together that I didn't necessarily have the language for, but in nature and in my quiet and in my listening that's what keeps bubbling up and that's the truth that keeps coming forward and seeing how much i've because what was interesting when i stepped away i became tribal in the liberal sense like that's right those idiots don't have it figured out that they're full mean mean green i was i have lived (laughs) out of that space for the last Uh, five years and very so harsh you almost got to go through it for a while but don't stay there long It's a dead end. It's a dead end. Yes, that's right. You know, I hope I make the point in the book that you can't overcome a negative anthropology with a positive theology. Mm. Oh, wait, wait. Say that one more time. So you can't overcome a negative anthropology. Your anthropology is your image of the human person. And I'm not trying to be anti-Protestant, but, you know, uh, when Calvin says human nature is totally depraved, He has dug a, a pit so deep, you can't get out of it. Totally depraved. Just hear those words. And God bless Martin Luther. I always identify with him. But he says human nature is a pile of manure covered with the white snow of Christ. And I know what he's trying to do. He, he's trying to do Christ a favor. But you can't overcome the pile of manure. Do you understand? Mm. It's just a, a disguise. Mm-hmm. Mm. What we have to get to, what I hope the book offers, uh, I'm going to use a big word, but I'll define it, I hope. Uh, we have got to get to ontological notion of holiness, not a moral notion. Ontological means the very nature of being. Hmm? That being itself is holy, by itself, in itself, because we carry the divine DNA in the God who created all things. Hmm. Uh, in his image and likeness. Now, that's why this book on the Christ is some ways a sequel to the book on the Trinity, the divine dance. You almost got to get the shape of God right. Okay, God is not a monarch, much less a white male monarch with a white beard sitting on a throne. And Christians got to be honest that many of them are still operating with that notion of God. Mm. It's pagan. Nothing against pagans, but that isn't the Christian revelation. So when you can be that wrong at the foundation, no wonder. So we threw the Trinity out in effect. We still said we believed in it, but it had no pastoral meaning. So we pushed Jesus into the place of the Trinity, and he became really God the Father uh, because we didn't like God the Father. He demanded blood to love us, so his love wasn't very infinite. And so my point is, Jesus got misshapen. Huh? Mm. That all we needed him for was the, the three pints of blood at the end of his life. Forgive me for being crude, but that's what it came down to. We didn't need his teaching. We didn't need his life. We didn't need his Sermon on the Mount. All we needed was our penal substitutionary atonement theory, mm. a phrase created in the 16th, 17th century. You know, Darn it. Which, which makes the relationship with God entirely transactional. Mm-hmm. God is yeah. transactional. 
It's not transformational. There's a divine transaction that took place between Jesus and his pissed off father. Why would anybody, if they'd think it out, mm. and maybe we who are theologically educated think about it too much, but it's done a lot of damage. Mm. And I think I say it in the book because for many years I gave these male initiation rites. They're still going on, but I don't give them anymore up here at Ghost Ranch, and where, why most men came, I don't think this is exaggerating, is they had a tragic relationship with their father. Mm. The amount of alcoholic fathers, abusive fathers, rageaholic fathers, emotionally unavailable fathers. So much of the human race was just programmed yeah. to think of God the Father, not as infinite love, but as infinite wrath. There, we're back mm. to that word. Oh, we've got so much unlearning to do, yes. which is almost the nature of our conversion, because mm. it, it's experienced as a letting go of self, yes. a letting go of what I was so certain about. Hey, it's Miles, and I want to take a quick minute to tell you about our friends at Nisolo. They are the sponsors of this week's episode, and they are a sustainable shoe and accessory brand that is committed to intentional design, ethical manufacturing, and fair pricing. Each Nisolo purchase provides a living wage and helps to combat climate change. Nisolo actually owns and operates its own sustainable factory in Peru, and they're offsetting their production's carbon emissions by protecting trees from deforestation in the nearby Peruvian Amazon. In 2018 alone, own, Nisolo customers have helped save more than 54,000 trees from being uprooted through their purchases. That's like the size of 62 baseball fields. It's really unreal. We have known Nisolo for years. Ruthie actually introduced me to this brand and now I'm a loyal customer and I love their shoes as does my wife and family. We had the pleasure recently of interviewing Patrick Woodyard, Nisolo founder and CEO at their headquarters in Nashville. And I got to tell you, my respect for this brand and their mission went up exponentially after hearing more about the heart behind this effort. You can listen to our conversation with him on the season two bonus episode to learn more about Nisolo products and ethos, or you can try them out for yourself because Nisolo is offering unspoken listeners 25% off their purchase at nisolo.com when you use code unspoken at checkout. That's N-I-S-O-L-O.com and enter unspoken at checkout for 25% off your purchase of ethically made shoes and bags. What do you think the payoff of transactional, the transactional piece is? Because there wouldn't be that many people bought into it unless it was a clear payoff. It gives you a sense of control, mm -hmm. that I can control the transaction somehow, mm -hmm. or buy into the transaction. And control gives you a sense of Whereas safety. Whereas transformational religion demands that you change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so we don't really like transformational religion. We'd prefer heavenly transactions. We believe in this and that. And, it's no skin off our back to believe. Let's pick one in another field, which I, as a Catholic, I have to believe in. I, and I don't bother fighting doctrines because usually they can be understood in a very correct way. But we have to believe in the virgin birth. And I guess evangelicals do too. But, you know, it really takes nothing from your ego to believe in the virgin birth. It's just a transactional 
thing that you assent to. And I can see the symbolism of it. It's very great. But it doesn't transform anybody, you understand, to believe that Mary was a virgin. It's a message about who is Jesus' father, which is a good way to communicate the message, that his father was God. Okay, good. So we can't have Joseph in the equation. We move Joseph out of the equation and pull God in, the Holy Spirit, and it works. It works. I'm not, I wouldn't bother to disagree with it. Do you understand? Yeah. And if you'd lead me down the road of any major doctrine, I could always say, yeah, I can see why they said that. I probably wouldn't say it that way, but that's my problem, not their problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious about, because there, there are a lot of our audience that won't be, they're not going to grab something through an intellectual or a theological no, lens. No. So they're looking people, and they don't need to either. They're looking for relational and experience. Uh, does it feel right? And I, I'm a little bit like that myself. Meaning, when I got back to identifying as a Christian, having kind of gone away from it for a while, it was really because I, of what I felt from people who showed me a different version of it. And when I got into the text or the theology and started, I had a really hard time reading the Bible. It, it was so conflictual for me that I almost was like, I don't even, at this point, I don't know that that's a healthy thing for me. Yeah. So I'm just going to go with gut. So I have so many people who, when I get into theology, they just completely tune it out. Glaze over. Glaze oh, over. I see it. And, and, and I don't blame them. Hmm. God could not have come to earth so everybody would be a theologian, you know? <laughs> <laughs> No, it's got to be apparent in the very nature of being, which is why I speak of this message as creation-based, nature-based yes. from the beginning, as Ephesians says about four times. Mm. You know, we were chosen in Christ from the beginning. Mm. The problem was solved at the very beginning. In fact, there is no problem. <laughs> uh, we created the problem. By beginning with Genesis 3 instead of Genesis 1, which you know what I'm going to say five times in a row. It was good. 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 It was very good. And then the Sabbath day, it was holy. An entirely positive message. And it's almost really malicious or something. That's not the best word. That we preferred to start with a problem. Mm. And when you begin with Genesis 3, you never get beyond Genesis 3. Yeah. That's why we created the term original sin, which isn't in the Bible. God bless dear Augustine. He created it. Because we got ourselves in that frame, and we didn't know how to fight our way out of this paper bag of a wounded universe from the beginning. And I'm not denying the fly in the ointment. You've got to deal with the problem of evil. Yes. Or you're not using your eyes. It's everywhere. So I can see why most of history was obsessed with the problem of evil. Because in many ways it's rationally unsolvable. But then they concentrated on it so much that we lost the good news. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't good anymore. It was bad. Will you talk about even the word sin? I still feel my body go like... Oh, mm. But when you talked about it as a communal instead of individual, yeah. we talk about that because that really, that felt so different to me and so beautiful and I could receive it because I'm like, that is yes, true. Yes, yes. That we all share in one another's stupidity. Mm. Uh, I mean, I don't know how else to put it. That we pull one another down. Uh, 
I'm actually writing right now since that book is done, just a small monograph the size of that Bible book on what I think, and I'm rather convinced, forgive me if I sound arrogant, what is Paul's notion of sin. And it is not individual nastiness, individual egocentricity. Paul's notion of sin, and I can find 25 quotes in his letters which make it clear, but we, you can't see what you're not told to look for. Mm. And, and when he talks, well, you know this, about the powers, the principalities, the thrones, the uh, dominations, the spirits in the air. Those are pre-modern words. I'm going to use words that will threaten us a little more. What he would call corporations, institutions, nation-states, military, industrial complexes. He's not saying every soldier is bad. I know a lot of soldiers who are much better than me, really. But he's talking about the systemic thing. The spirits in the air, you you can't capture the evil because it's collectively agreed to be good. (laughs) And we have an entire economy. That's a war economy. We couldn't function if we weren't preparing for the next war. Really, that is not an exaggeration. Uh, uh, Get a map sometime of of how many U.S. bases cover, cover the planet. If any other country, if the English Empire did that, we would be worried. But America can do it because we've, we're, in, we're the new empire. I'm not anti-American. I'm just saying let's develop some capacity for self-criticism. Mm. When you develop that capacity for self-criticism, you will see corporate sin. Uh, let, let's use a different word because most people, I start my little book with yeah. your point. Most people just glaze over when they hear the word sin. Yes. And understandably, because it's been so misused right. to, to threaten, to condemn the individual person. Right. Yeah. And the individual person can't carry the burden of sin. We have low self-esteem enough already. Almost all of us do. And I've been a priest 49 years this year. I, I met a lot of people in a lot of countries, and even people who are extremely good-looking and extremely well-built and wealthy, you get close to them and hear their story, low self-esteem. I mean, forgive me, I'm not trying to be political, but the present president of the United States has no self-confidence. None. (laughs) He needs to be reassured every 10 minutes that he's wonderful. Talk about lack of elders. Mm. Yeah. So uh, you don't see hardly anybody in politics that has the ability no, to handle no. uh, being wrong. But do you see how I'm trying to connect this with the gospel? When we ourselves gave fire and brimstone sermons, that our job was to create learned help or taught helplessness, we didn't contribute to high self esteem. Right. Whereas if the true gospel had been preached, And they say this is why Paul had such success in Asia Minor and Greece uh, in in a very short period, overwhelming success, because he was restoring to a culture where women had no dignity, women were just property, maybe as much as three out of five members of the Roman Empire were slaves. Now he walks into the city and says, you are all equal in Christ. (laughs) 
you all have equal dignity. The gospel was meant to be a social revolution, <laughs> and I think it was for a short period. But then once we aligned with empire in 313 and afterwards, it was over. It really was. I'm not saying God wasn't present, the gospel was not occasionally preached, but it mostly so aligned with power and money and war. Mm. And I'm largely accusing my own church, the Roman Catholic tradition, mm. so aligned with kings and princes and queens and uh, everything, a gospel of the Sermon on the Mount, the eight Beatitudes. Can you imagine a king or an emperor reciting proudly the eight Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> Blessed are the meek. We actually not only do not agree with that, if you have an imperial mind, you rabidly disagree with that. Hmm? Mm. Yes. Uh, none of you are from Texas, are you? Uh, oh, <laughs> well, maybe I shouldn't say it. Well, <laughs> when it. you live in New Mexico, the acceptable state to pick on is Texas. <laughs> Forgive me. But uh, I, I taught there in many different counties. And as you probably know, almost every Texas county has these beautiful courthouses. They're really quite nice pieces of architecture. And there's always the Ten Commandments. And I was stupid enough one time to be walking around some county in Texas and I, we were reading the Ten Commandments, and I said to the host, would you ever think of putting up the eight Beatitudes on a Texas courthouse lawn? Now he said, now remind me, what are those? And I started reading, he said, well, probably not. <laughs> yeah, at least he was honest, yeah. you know? Wow. Now, mm. no room for the real message of Jesus. Mm. Uh, I mean, the Ten Commandments are just... To get you started, did you say you read Falling Upward? I uh, did. Yeah, what I'd call the first half of life. Right. The, the Ten order. Commandments are a moral mandate for the yes. first half of life. Yes. Which means our religion is still a first half of life religion. Right. When it gets to the second half of life wisdom, which is countercultural, counterintuitive, we aren't very good at that mm -hmm. at all, at all. Did you feel called early on to priesthood or how did you when did you know yeah i did well i had some wonderful god experiences as a little boy and once you've had an experience of the absolute mm. the immediate effect you don't verbalize it yet you don't know that's what's happened to you but one parting of the veil that allows you to see the absolute is the only absolute and everything else is relative then in my generation the 1950s, uh, to be a priest was the only thing that made sense. Mm. I got to tell other people about what I intuitively know. I would never have had the scripture or the uh, theology to verbalize it yet. Mm. It was all intuitive. But I think it liberated me all the way through the seminary. I could accept the order that the Roman Catholic Church and the American Empire offered me. I didn't need to hate them or throw them out, but I could see it was only partially true. Mm -hmm. So that's why I had to learn non-dual thinking. Yeah. Uh, I well, just say, describe... America is great and America is terrible. Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church is great, the Catholic Church is terrible. Mm -hmm. I can really exist with both of those being true. Mm -hmm. Most people can't. 
Like if you criticize, well, Ronald Reagan said it, thou shalt not criticize a Republican. Well, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Once we do that, you're not going to get very many smart Republicans. I mean it. If you, if you cannot criticize your own group, you're, you're idolatrous. And I, you'll have to forgive me because I am uninformed or a little bit uneducated on Catholicism other than no just reason you should be. friends right. and been to some been in some Catholic weddings which were long and interesting. Long, yeah. <laughs> long and interesting. Standing and sitting. Kneeling and alive. Kneeling. Kneeling no, alive. we don't expect you to kneel, but, but go ahead. But there's yeah. some cool ceremony that I experienced in having participated in, but there's a lot I don't know, um, particularly uh, how is it a requirement that all priests vow to celibacy and uh, poverty? started in the 11th century, yeah. uh, celibacy. And that's and a it, standard across the board, or are there exceptions? No. Well, okay, that's a good question. The Anglican Church has always allowed married priests. Mm. When Anglican Church decide to return to the Mother Church, as we would put it, <laughs> uh, they are allowed to keep their wives. So it's amazing how many there are. There's a lot of Anglican priests, now Catholic priests, who are married. And that's the foot in the door, because it's going to change. And that we got along a thousand years without it should tell us that it should change. Now, the vow of poverty, see, these are things you wouldn't know, no reason for you to know, is only for those of us in religious orders. Okay. So as a Franciscan, I can't own anything privately. Everything is collectively owned by the community and one reason we including this, like your books and well, yeah one reason I, I guess you don't know we got four or five different properties on this one mile long road I'm a little embarrassed at it but uh, they're going to become guest houses several of them when we build the new center but uh, Francis didn't want us to own any property well, my real point is the reason we can do that is the Franciscans Detached from money, which is Francis' big thing. Don't ever get into hoarding money, collecting money. He told us not even to touch money. I mean, he was a bit overreacting. <laughs> but, but he had to be a prophet to get us to recognize what this does to the soul. The Franciscans approached me about 12, 15 years ago and said, Richard, we know you don't live high. You don't abuse your vow of poverty. Uh, so we would like to willingly, intentionally give over all the money from your books and tapes to the CAC. So that's why we can have 46 people on the staff. Amazing. Earning good salaries. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if that'll last forever. But I'm, I'm really grateful that we don't hoard money. But and you can earn a salary. You just can't own, I can't, own a company. I can, yeah. Or okay. I can't have a personal bank account. Well, that helps yeah. a lot with the poverty thing, the celibacy thing. I'd love if you could take that same spin on why, the why behind that. Because I'll be honest, I'm just going to be honest about why I'm asking it, because, and you may already know, or you, well, you have a, a smile a that smile. would <laughs> tell me that you're either empathizing or curious. But uh, Both. I, I, somebody who studies psychology, and then I've obviously, we've worked with a lot of the victims of the abuse, abuse scandal. And a lot of times the Catholic Church has been great. I will say they've been great about paying for it. I don't, I don't know if it was well-intended or just hush, but they would pay for victims to come to places like mine to get help years later. 
And um, I always was curious as much about the perpetrator as I was the victim. Wow, um, good for you. To, to try to understand the why. And is celibacy fighting biology or is it a discipline that is important? I just, I just would love to understand your take on it. Okay, let me come at it uh, my own angle, I guess. The only way celibacy healthily works and I would say it's probably in certainly less than 10%. It's not they're bad people. They don't intend to be hypocrites. They all set out intending to do it. That's good to hear, that percentage. <laughs> oh, uh, but uh, you have to have, first of all, a affective, the beginnings of an affective love of God. There, the eros has to be alive in your heart or you don't become a healthy person. You have to love somebody. <laughs> You have to love something. And I'm afraid many understood celibacy as, well, to love God means to love nobody else. That's, that can't be true. Uh, and so I think a lot of guys got, and gals, nuns too, got very well trained in repression. Mm. And if you are a personality that was inclined toward repression, it made sense to you just you know, split, basically split from yourself. Yes. But what the pedophilia scandal is showing us is that that doesn't work forever. It eventually, on one lonely night, catches up with you, mm. and usually in a very perverse, perverted way. Uh, oh, it's so sad. Mm. But I, I've met enough healthy, happy celibates to know it can work. If you have... I'm going to use a stronger word, the beginnings of an erotic love of God, because eros has to be somewhere. It, you can't just have a mental love of God. But a true mystic has experiential knowledge of God, which actually feeds and fills the soul better than any sex ever will. Mm. <laughs> and many have said that, you know. But to sustain that through a whole lifetime, you don't feel it every day, that's for sure. Mm. Mm -hmm. Uh, your sexual partner or your love partner is, is close and you can touch them. God, you can't reach out and, and grab them to yourself every day. Uh, I've also found that you have to have come from a family where there was affection, touch, uh, intimacy, tenderness. Secure attachment. Yeah, yeah yes. very good. You use the professional words. If those are there, you can pull it off again. But uh, I've so often met, and I've given priest retreats all over the world, men who came from broken families where they were never hugged, mm. for example. The need for physical caress, eye gaze, intimacy is, is so deep. I'm not even going to convict them, why should I, of evil. You know, most people aren't evil. They're just weak, <laughs> like all of us are, really, if the truth is told. You know, Jesus never condemns sexual sin. It's amazing that we concentrated on it. Because sexual sin is seldom malice. Now, when it becomes rape or power, but then it's not sex anymore. It's power, as you know. So, but let me give you end with, because I could go on in this for an hour. Uh, what, what fed the argument so much was the seeming 
New Testament evidence that both Jesus and Paul were unmarried. That fed the whole, oh, well, if the two biggies in the New Testament never married, that became the ideal. Ah, okay. See, yeah. Then it makes sense to a Bible-loving evangelical. Thank God you didn't imitate us in that. But, uh, you know, I'll look at my own life. I'm not saying I'm by any means perfect. But uh, I could not have done most of what I did if I had a wife and children, mm-hmm. just to give a very practical basis for it. Uh, so it you gives, would be in that category of ha- someone who's happy well, and celibate. Well, I think so. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah, it's worked for me. I'd be lying if I said oh, it's, it I've always been curious, and I, I was always like, oh, man, I bet I couldn't ask you in that. But I just wondered. Oh, you know, well, thank you like, for having the courage to you, ask it. Are you, do you still have or have you ever had attractions to oh, of men course, or women? Of or, course. You know. If you don't fall in love, you don't know. Mm. You know, the trouble is we lump together sexuality with genitality. Mm. (laughs) I have to be a sexual person. And by that I mean, forgive me, I can touch another person and and hug another person and enjoy that, not in a genital way or an arousing way, but just there has to be human intercourse, not genital intercourse. You know, like in my early years in Cincinnati, I lived in mixed households with marriages and children, and so it was very tactile. Uh, if you exclude all tactility, I don't know that you're going to be healthy too Well, there's long. not embodiment. There's not embodiment. And very embodiment, good. Yeah. And, and mine wasn't through Catholic religion, but I felt like I needed to feel ashamed of my body, yes, my sexuality, yes, 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 yes. masturbation. All those things yes, were yes, things yes. to hide, to yes. keep in the closet and don't tell anyone about it, don't talk about yeah. it, because that's shameful and it's bad and wrong and you're a bad girl. See, it's easier to shame the body than any other, the soul or the mind or the heart. Mm. The body carries this sense of unworthiness. Mm-hmm. We see it die. We see it like me getting old, uh, losing its good looks that it once had and all those things. <laughs> uh, so you, you experience embodiment as the fallible part mm-hmm. of human nature. And this is true. I've had Jews and Buddhists come to me with immense sexual guilt. Mm-hmm. And, and they can't blame it on Christianity. It's somehow in the human species. That's why most religion begins with purity codes. Don't touch this. Don't do that. Yeah. Well, and it's, I think in, it's all set up this way for yeah. us to re-associate. Yeah. Besides, because our body is what holds all of those traumas mm-hmm. and pains. Mm-hmm. And I, I lived in my bed for seven years with chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And I've lived in chronic pain for like 15 years. And I'm just now just now starting to embrace my shadows Mm. and embrace the emotional pain that I believe with every part of me is going to help release this physical pain that I've been living in. Mm. And I've never connected that because I broke my neck. I have all this physical, Mm. I have the physical reasons to not be healthy and have a physical Mm -hmm. ailments. But now I'm like, I have been holding so Mm. much trauma and so much pain and I've been repressing and disassociating and I just, I mean, it's so new, but like starting to come back and like own some really messed up things that happened and that were stories that were told Mm. and stories I believed and embraced and shame and those things. 
in releasing and fe- letting myself as a good Southern girl feel effing mad mm-hmm. and anger mm-hmm. and like, necessary. It's to go so necessary. And necessary. it's releasing. Yeah. Like yeah. I know my body is releasing because it's been mm-hmm. holding. Holding. So I yeah, think, that was your form of repression. Totally. Just like nuns and priests had yes. theirs. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the word is, but it's the same thing. Yeah, it really is. It really is. If we could only, uh, I mean, I'm convinced. Again, I've had so much experience as a confessor, which is something we have, but as a spiritual director, as a counselor, I think almost all human beings carry a great wound. Mm. Maybe that's what we really meant by original sin. I mean, once you hear their story, this good-looking, well-built Wealthy man comes in and he says, well, he has no problems. Then he starts telling his story. Every human being seems to carry a great hurt, a great hurt. And uh, in fact, now that we came up with the symptoms of PTSD, when I see that most of history was a nonstop war, Mm. you know, yes. Wave after wave of battles Trauma. in every European country. Imagine little kids seeing their parents taken away. I mean, most of human history had PTSD mm-hmm. in some form or another. Yes. And I've said that to crowds in the last few years, and they actually seem to feel a relief. It's the whole thing, our guilt is my guilt, my guilt is yes. I don't have to carry it alone. We're That's all right. in this damn thing together. Yes. But we're all in this good thing together, too. Yes. See, the the notion of the Christ for me, and that was the point of that book, is a corporate notion. Yes. It's a we experience. And until you move from me to we, you don't understand the Christ. Mm. Well, and I think, too, in the church or in the Southern culture like I did, like it's so easy to disassociate the people at the border. That, because you're like oh, that's no, not that's no. not my situation, but it's our. It everyone is our children, yes. and so those are my children that yes. are getting locked away. You yes. know, and thinking of it like it, that corporate, and I'm a part of putting that child mm-hmm. in that cell. Mm-hmm. You know, and dissociation. That, I'm so glad you're using these professional words. You know, one. Um, White woman from the South, since we're picking on the South today, don't we're all in this together. I, I don't mean to do that. But she said, can you imagine what a white woman in the South who had an 11-year-old boy had to dissociate to see a little 11-year-old boy being sold on the auction block? Oh. She has an 11-year-old boy at home. Mm. But this boy, who isn't her boy, mm. you have to split. Yes. You have to mm. split. So that, it's a dissociative religion, which makes empathy impossible. Mm. <laughs> and it's not their fault. They're not bad people. But they're so used to dissociating from their body and their heart yeah. that the Mexican kids don't matter. Just the little white boys from Louisiana matter. It's not conscious. It's no, very, it's very, very good. Very, very good. You, thank conscious. you for saying that. It's, it's. That's right. They'd never do it if they were doing it it's consciously. Good people. Yeah, good like people. Some of I the know. kindest I know. people ever. My dances were segregated. Mm, even my that, dances. Even that. And when mm. I started bringing my friends to the white dance off campus, mm-hmm. these people I'd gone to church with my whole life. I was enemy number one because I was, 
I was breaking. Complicit with the enemy. Absolutely. Huh? <laughs> and it's just, and it, these are oh. good, like kind people that I've watched shown oh. up for other white people yeah. in ways that are next level. But then all of a sudden, out of fear, it was such oh, a yeah. fearful. And like these are, you know, they're not evil people. No. The scapegoat mechanism, Renee Girard says, is unconscious. It's unconscious. It, if you were conscious, in fact, we'd all do the good every day. Yeah. If you and I were 100% conscious, we would do the loving thing every day. And I Sin is unconsciousness, right. to get back to that theme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're, you, it, what Jesus said from the cross was true. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Mm. They don't know. It's yeah. <laughs> they're just on cruise control. And I think what's such a great reminder to me is I'm doing little things like that yes, every single day. Me too. Like I am making these little like, and all of a sudden I'm like I, I'm no better than that. Like I have. Me too. You know, Absolutely. and it's I see that, and but when I see it as a we, that feels so different because I doesn't don't. It, it doesn't does, it? and it, I'm not shaming myself. Yes. I'm not like you wretch. <laughs> I'm like oh. Yes. Coming back to, no, we're all so loved. Yeah. And I can see that tendency in me, and I can, with compassion, be like, oh, Ruby, mm-hmm. you precious girl. Mm. That doesn't fit anymore. Thank you. Thank you. That was the import of that chapter called One Lump. Yep. Yes. It's sort of a homely phrase, but yeah. <laughs> You're, I love the way when you start getting towards, especially towards the end, there's so much. It's layered, and you almost have to, it'd be, it's a great book study type book to be able to go chapter by chapter. Have they sent you the book study? No. No. Oh, it was created by a team from here. It's just brilliant. Oh, I'll, I'll give you, I've only got one copy. I'll, oh, they gave you one? Oh, no. Oh. I was just telling my oh, best friend oh. we're going to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. But I like how you move towards transformation as a practice towards the end. Um, I was, I kept, it's honestly, I kept waiting on that. I was like, oh, when, does this, neat, neat. when does this feel practical application? How do we move it into action? Mm-hmm. And I love that you gave a couple practices, and it was so affirming for what I do working in the emotional reconciliation or wellness oh, space. Yeah. And that people for years, and I remember when I first got into the space, we had a secular offering but had a very diverse makeup of participants, a couple thousand a year, and largely made up of Christians because we're in America, but uh, there were a lot of other folks too. Orthodox Jewish community really trusts us and comes, and just a good mix. But I, a lot of people would say, I feel this work is more, and we're faith neutral or faith inclusive, meaning we don't exclude people for what they do and don't believe. Yes. But I kept... Uh, people kept saying, I feel more spiritual in this work than anything I've ever experienced. And I kept wondering, why? You know, what are we doing? And then when I read your first part, the challenge about um, putting it into practice, and you, you mentioned things like meditation and shadow work and all how all that's an important mm-hmm. part of faith and spirituality, I never thought that that could be coupled together. So one of the first times I thought, man, spiritual health and emotional health don't have to be exclusive. They're together. That can be a similar wow. thing. So to me, it was so validating. And uh, I agree, too. I think we all carry a great wound. And I actually trust people more when I understand their wound, the person behind yes. the message. Isn't that true? Yes. Isn't that true? And that, yeah. that, that was what I was curious about is do you have uh, – do you share much about, like, what's your great wound? You know, I, I, I've never said I have a great one. I have a whole bunch of little ones. Uh, the, you know, I think my temptation was more 
because I know God gave me a gift to say things that I hope are true, that I hope are healing for people. But to take myself too seriously, to say to myself in moments of solitude or, or loneliness, who do you think you are? Mm. And to, especially my 40s and 50s, uh, it was tremendous temptations to self-doubt that, Richard, you're a hypocrite. You don't believe what you say. And I'd see that I didn't always practice what I say, you know? It's much easier to teach it than it is to live it. <laughs> uh, uh, so it was inner voices assaulting me with, uh, of course, I'm a one on the Enneagram, if you know the Enneagram. Oh, yeah. we, we tend to be very hard on ourselves mm -hmm. to begin with. So it was more or less that. And then even moving to the faith level, uh, here I'm a priest and I dress up in these robes and celebrate Mass and... I think I'm authentic, or, but then I have to take off the vestments like we all have to take off our clothes mm. and know I'm like everybody else. I'm naked like everybody else is. So it's more inner demons mm. that have come through most of the middle of my life, much less so now as I get older. Like I say, now I can go for broke. I don't, I don't <laughs> have anything to fear, really. Mm. Uh, so live long if you can, <laughs> if if it accumulates into wisdom, because yeah. you have nothing to prove. Uh, you can just be who you really are, really, and you don't need to set up any model of an idealized self. Thanks for I I have that now, and I'm glad to self doubt. Hear you, you mean? Oh man, and I'm glad, and I and I feel like I shouldn't, based on all the tools that I have and what I'm armed with. And you're and, in your thirties. 40s. 40s. Yeah, that's where you should be. Yeah. Really. Mm. So don't feel crazy. Mm. That, that's what tests the soul, uh, to overcome those by digging deeper and finding you know, <sighs> your authentic self. I'm so glad self. to hear you say that, because um, at 42, I think I should have this dialed No, in. no, God. And I know that's... And I, t I, t I teach a different message, like uh, we never yourself. arrive, but... But yourself, <laughs> yes. I should have it together, yeah. How, how has the universal Christ message specifically, which is, uh, I cannot wait for people who haven't read this to read this, how has it helped you or has it helped you navigate the current health over the last few years? I know you've had some health yeah. challenges, some pretty significant ones. How has it helped you frame that or navigate that? Has it? Oh. You know, this book was the hardest book I ever wrote and another side of my mouth, I'm going to say the easiest book I ever wrote. It just flowed out. It was the fulfillment of my life's work where all the ideas from the previous books were able to come together. Mm. So in that sense, it was very easy. But then the publishers got so invested in the message, God bless them, <laughs> uh, that they just it went back eight times back and forth. Richard, put this chapter there. Uh, you need an example here. You know, that idea isn't really explained. Uh, it just got to be a much better book because of them, not because of me. The original outflow largely happened exactly two years ago in March uh, when I sat down and wrote the first draft. Most of it's there. But then two years, I used to write my books in two months. This one took two years. But I think you see the greater um, whatever in it. It, mm. it just rings more true for a lot of people. 
So, um, no, it wasn't hard at all. And, and, you know, I think we all hesitate to say, I know evangelicals will hate me for this. Well, Catholics will too. Uh, that it almost felt like it flowed through me. I didn't think it. Mm. I, re- I opened that book some days now. I said, when did I say that? I, I don't even know that idea right now in this present moment. One day last February, I wrote that, I guess. you know, There is something to, well, you know it in the areas where you're competent, where the gift just flows yes. and you would actually stop it by thinking about it too much. Mm. You know, I, I didn't think a lot when I was in front of my little laptop. It just poured out of me, you know, the, the substance of the book. And the, remember, the reason I say that is because it's not saying anything about me. It's saying something about the Holy Spirit. And, and I think the Holy Spirit works that way in all of us, according to our gift. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And the all-important thing is that you flow with that gift, whatever it is. And it might be painting. It might be music. Huh? Mm. It might be therapy. But where you know you're being used, Mm -hmm. it's not me. You know, Mother Teresa used to say, I'm just the pencil with which God is writing. Mm -hmm. And she meant it. I was with her once when she said that. I'm just the pencil, you know, and she believed that. What I had hoped, and we've been able to have this experience with in, in the thing I love about you is you just lead with that. You lead with who you are, and then we get to learn what you know. And today's culture, especially with this new generations, they don't care what you know until they uh, learn who you are. Mm. And true? I really wanted mm. today, because I have been um, inspired by your work for a while, but I wanted people to get to experience a little bit of the humanness of Father Richard Rohr and not just the intellect, the well, theologian. I, I gave a little piece of it. Well, you thank, have. And, and thank you. Thank and, you. and that, because I think they're more likely to open up and consume or yes. digest information if they feel they can trust the source and, and not feel like somebody's telling them what to do. Yes. You do, I think, a, a good job with that. One of the more human, relatable experiences that I, that I felt was when you talked about Venus. Mm. And here's her picture. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm genuinely surprised. I would say over half the letters and emails I've already got on the book mention that. Mm. And here I thought it was a minor point. But uh, the fact that I used the very dedication to my dog, uh, I guess it grabbed people right at the beginning. And then I must refer to her about four or five times. So here's my theological assumption. Whatever operates to pull that flow out of you is Christ for you. That's operating at that moment as the Christ mystery. Because you've got to get that flow started. And that's why someone being vulnerable like you are doing. Uh, it has that effect. Or when you say, people don't care what you say anymore, but who you are. That always has the potential of starting the flow, where it makes it a subject to subject, not subject to object. Mm. And I think we're all tired. I know I am after sitting in front of professors for so (laughs) many years, you know, of uh, knowing I was just sort of a commodity in which they gave their objectified knowledge. And a lot of it was, frankly, very good. 
but it wasn't transformative. Mm. So yes. we say a lot here in the living school, education is not the same as transformation. Mm. And that's yeah. a mistake we made in our catechism classes you made in your Bible study. Uh, it was all searching for a kind of objectified knowledge, not participatory knowledge, that you're a part of this mystery. Mm. Uh, as John says in one of his letters, I'm not writing to you because you do not know. I'm writing to you because you already know. Oh, yeah. Yes. And when you're touching, oh. oh my God, that's ringing true. Yes. Why is that ringing true to me? Is <laughs> because it's part of me. Yes. <laughs> that's the indwelling oh. Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Will you tell this story? I told, retold it so many times because I think it's the most precious thing I've ever heard. Um, you just shared at Wyden about the little boy when the baby came home. Oh, my. <laughs> you know, it, I, I told that for years now. Back in Cincinnati was where I first heard it, my first 15 years. I hope it's a true story, but even if it isn't, it makes this story. It feels sto- true to me. <laughs> it sounds true to me, too. The family has a three-year-old boy. They have a new little baby boy, and uh, they put him in the crib, and the family goes to sleep for the night, and the little three-year-old comes to the parents and says, can I go talk to my little brother? Uh, well, okay, if you want to, we'll take you in there. And, uh, and this is what he supposedly said. Quick, they listened at the door. They did. He said, I want to talk to him alone. As you know, three year olds can be very prescient that way in terms of their awareness. I want to talk to him alone. They closed the door, listened at the door. He said, Quick, tell me where you came from. And then this even stranger line I'm beginning to forget. Mm. Tell me where you came from. I'm beginning to forget. Uh, it's just. <laughs> Could this be that we all know it at the beginning? And, and that's why we called it the first seven years when people were most subject to religious experience. Because you know a whole bunch of things, but you don't have any trouble believing in invisible things. Before invisible seven. Friends. Yeah. And then, then you get to the age of reason and you stop believing in invisible things. And that animals can talk. Now, is that childish? Or is there something deeply intuitive about that? Mm. That yes. all creatures are animate. Do you see? I mean, that's what my father Francis felt. Brother sun, sister moon, yes. sister fox, brother water, sister air. I mean, St. Francis would be ca- called a, a pantheist mm-hmm. by most evangelicals. Yeah. No, he was a Christian, mm-hmm. if, if you'll allow me to say. He got the big message. That's right. If, if God doesn't love everything, I think we have reason to doubt if God loves very well at all. Right. Really. And he's so, she's, he, <laughs> she, he's so yeah. good. I have a sign right by my front door, and I don't know French, but it just looked prettier in French. But it says, I remember. And in the French language, it means I remember me. And oh. I, I think that's what I've, in this last season of beginning to awaken, I, I've begun remembering. I'm remembering like things that 
before, like that innocent, I've started doing five rhythms dance classes. Mm. And in that, it's like, I dance like I did as a child before I thought other people were watching me. And I just wanted to express myself. Wish I could be that free. That's beautiful. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's what the class, I mean, that's what, you come in self-conscious. And at first I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And within like three, Hillary McBride taught it to me for the first time or showed it to us at a Divine Feminine retreat. And I was, it just was the most precious thing. And I was like, I just kept seeing myself as a little girl. I would, I would just go in the yard and just dance. I just wanted to dance all the time. And there, it wasn't for anyone. It was just expression and like remembering Mm -hmm. I just, I don't, and remembering source that's within me and that love. It feels, it's so precious. It's like an unlearning to re-remember. Wow. That's People beautiful. think you're making that up, but I'm sure you're not. Oh, it's <laughs> thank you, thank you. You know, uh, since you've gone into that area and you have a therapeutic background, I think one of the reasons for—I was just in a bookstore yesterday, and uh, I was amazed how many books on female empowerment. You know, I mean, whole sections of it. I think the reason this is such an urgent need is the feminine women, <laughs> girls are much more tempted to self-doubt than we, we guys are overconfident when we have no reason to be. I mean, I dove into a pool when I could barely swim, hoping I could get the Eagle Scout Award. I, well, I can do that. I can get to the other side. And I'm almost drowning by the middle of Just overconfidence. I'm 15 year old at that point. So, but I think one of the wonderful things that's happening in our lifetime is women recognizing they're much more subject to self-doubt and to trust their own body, as you Mm. just said, but to even trust their own mind and heart, uh, their own soul, use whichever word you want. They have to be given a lot more permission at this point in history Mm. because they've been told again and again, don't. The man is the superior one, which just ain't true, as you know. But, you know, my mother's generation believed that. Yeah. Yeah. Or we think we need permission, but it's already ours. Yeah, it's very good. It's already ours. <laughs> four weeks away, or it could be earlier or later, but uh, from having a baby girl. And oh. Yeah. Your first? This will be my second. I've got an 18-month-old little boy at home. A little boy. <laughs> wow. And so I, I just hearing you all say that, I had this sense of peace come over me because I just think it's such a good time to raise a girl mm. In, mm. in our world today. Maybe better than any other time historically. Yes. yes. And, and they, his, they have to be allowed, I'm sorry, to go through the anger stage yes. and you, even your little girl will have to do that yes. uh, it's a, it's a part of the process for some reason which is always reowning yourself mm. on some level whatever level it'll be but i'm sure you will not get in your daughter's way four weeks from now huh yes <laughs> i loved what you said um and i'm gonna butcher it because i don't know exactly no, the won't. language but you were talking about how when this awakening started happening in the 60s and the 70s and this liberal like open movement um only like 15 or so percent of their children kept in that because they also needed order but then with the other with like um, a very conservative, really, like almost all of their children follow in that because it's just, and so to not 
have as much judgment about because it it's the natural way. Yes, it's yes. the human yeah. way. We look for, we need order as a part of the process and to have so much love and compassion for that part. And then the disorder, having love, if, if you need. So you've heard me talk about the three boxes. Okay. Yes, I Good. love. Good, then I don't have to repeat it. It's well, so simple, might not but our that. students just get something when I say that. And especially that there's no nonstop flight to reorder. That's you right. must Will go you through Will you explain disorder. that a little? Because I don't know that our Well, audience. it's really falling upward. Oh, would I explain it a little? Well, the easiest way to start is with order. Yes. Now, what's happened uh, since 1968, which you're after that, I suspect, yes. uh, is people grew up in disorder. Unless you grew up in a very closed community, safe community, ghetto, kind of everybody was Southern Baptist uh, Christian, all went to the same church, then you can still grow up with order. But what you have to suffer, and this is, this is the cross, is that your perfect explanation of order is your perfect explanation. <laughs> That's all it is. It That's ain't right. truth. That's right. It's what is comfortable for your culture, your family, to feel separate and superior. Yes. Remember, those are the two things the ego wants. And, well, it wants to be in control, too. So it operates nicely as long as, I mean, I lived in a German farmer, farmer family in Kansas. As long as we were all Catholic farmers, <laughs> it was wonderful. I mean, it was idyllic order. Sure. In my huge family, there wasn't such a thing as divorce. There were, you married forever. And I, my, I had 11 aunts and uncles on one side and 15 on the other. Uh, no divorce. Now, I'm not saying all the marriages were wonderful, but it, it did allow you to grow up with a sense of order. They had a hard time because they so invested in the order dealing with disorder. Right. Mm. They were too attached to the order. And that's speaking for a lot of people, probably... 50% of America even, you know, and because it's their order. They don't see the narcissism in it. So something God has to throw a curveball at you, something in your life, family, experience. It's often death, the death of a parent, the death of a loved one, the failure of a marriage, the uh, loss of your faith, loss of a job, these floods, can you imagine what they're teaching people mm. and these fires in America? So something, that's the thesis in falling upward. Yeah. The cross will happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you can integrate disorder, you don't have to run back to the initial false order, but you have to say, well, God's perfection is the inclusion of imperfection. Mm. So human order is the exclusion of imperfection. That's called forgiveness. That's God's job description, forgiving everything all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that means God knows there's disorder and saying, you know what, it's okay anyway. Mm. We want to get rid of the problem, segregation. Yeah. The trouble, and I, you know what I'm going to say now, those formed after the artificial date of 1968, normally grew up in disorder after the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the war against poverty, uh, the war, beginnings war, of, war. of revelation. I mean, we didn't even know the word sexism in the 70s. Mm -hmm. 
because we pretty much accepted the paradigm that we men were better. Uh, how silly, you know, when you think <laughs> of it. And the poor gay people. I didn't know the word transgender till the last 10 years, I think. Yeah. It's amazing how you just keep living in ghettos of various types. <laughs> but when you grow up and you never had the idyllic Kansas boy on the farm, uh, that's even harder to start in the second box of disorder. Wow. Uh, where I learned that was I was jail chaplain here for 14 years in the city jail. And I, I've used this example always because it was so real for me for many years. Most of these young men and young women who'd wasted their first 25 years on drug, sex, rock and roll, they just had created horrible lives for themselves, just yeah. horrible. Uh, they longed for order. And the fundamentalist preachers were much more successful in the jail than I was. I'd have my little circles of community and talking to them about love and forgiveness. They liked me, but I wasn't nearly as popular as the fire and brimstone teachers. Mm, interesting. Oh, yeah. They liked wow, they wanted absolute certainty, <gasps> certitudes. Yeah, I, I was just, I was just wow. at San Quentin and spoke there. And oh, I did too. Oh, wow. you were? Yeah, years you know, ago though. It's yeah. a beautiful place. I mean, there, wow. Uh, the the amount of programming that the volunteers bring into that prison is more than anywhere else in the country. But it also is it's prison at the end of the day. And so I never saw racial divide on display like I do in within a prison. I mean, there's literally clear lines oh, yes. based on it's order because if you think about it. They're going back into the primitive brain, which is Very good. survival. And yes. so I need to go to the basic control order. Mm. And there was this one young Hispanic uh, former gang member who just was so touching, and he felt like he just got it. And thankfully, he's a couple years, I think, from potentially parole and getting out. But he, I said, what message would you like? What story would you like me to tell? It seems to you like the narrative of what we historically knew as prisoners and inmates is not uh, what you hope that culture would understand about the men and women or the men that are here specifically at San. And he said, we're not prisoners or inmates. We're just men who are currently incarcerated who wow, one day will get a Isn't that chance. nice that they didn't take it as an identity? And then he also said, and he said, in, for, in my case, I don't believe in at-risk youth. I believe in neglected youth. And wow. I thought, well that just said, gave me the chills. neglected youth. Wow. Oh, my, we just have so much to learn yet. Let me tie this in with what we said earlier. I was saying we got to give an ontological basis for dignity, for goodness, for holiness from the inception, from the beginning. Yes. When you don't give people that, what, they, what you almost have to give them is a moral basis for holiness, our mm. goodness. It's not inherent, it's earned. Yep. So every one of us is going to find 10 excuses why well, I'm not moral enough, perfect enough, right enough, and we just rush right toward it. Yeah. If you don't give it an objective foundation for your dignity, you have to create it yourself. <laughs> and uh, by 20, you've all found, well, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I did that, I'm ashamed of that. Don't let anybody know I did that. And uh, just endless self-hatred. Mm. You know. Well, and it goes either extreme because it also can be like, but I did, I am this, yes, this, yes, this, that's right, this, that's right. this, this, this. 
you know, and so anything that makes me feel like I am better than mm-hmm. or anything that makes me feel like I'm a piece of shit and worse than mm-hmm. isn't true because yeah. we're all one. Very that's good. A, that's Very a good. beautiful segue. And, and I know you've been so generous with your time, yes. so we'll start landing the plane here. But I am curious because I get invited to speak specifically in the last couple of years at these bigger Christian uh, conferences, in addition to the therapeutic psychology conferences on the uh-huh. secular side. So I get to do Wonderful. both, which has been such a gift. And I am a believer in unlearning. I've learned that through a therapeutic uh, lens, Model, yeah. the importance and separation of identity and not getting over-attached to even... And Any I, and persona, yes. Psychology yes. brings in the same amount of baggage as religion does. It and, really does. Yes. And in a sense, education in general yes. does, yeah. <laughs> and we've been trying to neutralize our language and and uh, and and get away from seeing people as problems, depathologize it basically, just to see humans oh. as humans as much as we can. I feel like it's a, a better approach. But I'm thinking ahead of all of my friends who, because there are people that know you in different ways. So when I was telling people we're getting to come see you, they know you as a spiritual thought leader. Some know you as the Enneagram guy, um, and and everything in between. But there are, and there are certain people who would be threatened by the stretch. And I wanted people to know that universalism, in a sense, is not bad. It's just bigger. It's just a bigger ideology of where the message can go mm. is what I've been learning by reading all this. But say I'm standing on a stage uh, trying to, in a sense, teach some of this. How would I do that and not recreate what's already in place? Basically, we're mm. right and you're wrong. Mm. Mm. Well, certainly you don't want to start with I'm here to convince you of some universalist notion. <laughs> yeah, leave uh, that word out. Don't start <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, I, you have to come to it by inner insight about the nature of love, the nature of infinite love, the nature of freedom, the nature of truth. Love by its very nature is infinite. Yes. <laughs> so uh, maybe that almost sounds philosophical, but I think it's true. So the more you can put out the little pieces and then let them put the pieces together so you don't need to be the convincer or the one whose job is to make them think something. You know what uh, these people who are working in hospice are teaching us is uh, Kathleen Dowling Singh. Have you read any of her books? Mm -hmm. She taught her with us once and really holy woman. And she was of the opinion after watching apparently almost thousands of people in their last day, their last hours of life, that almost everybody was in effect universalist at the end, (laughs) at the very end, the last three days, that you know I don't have to be perfect. There's just some great love out there that i got to trust. And they have the grace to do it, she claimed. Most people, in her experience, die very well. Even people who've been secular, who we Christian people would just love them to die a miserable death. <laughs> and she says, well, you know, they die just as about. In fact, she goes so far as to say, the people who are most afraid of death, yes. I'm sorry to have to say this, is Bible-thumping Christians. Mm-hmm. At the very end, they've never learned how to let go They've never learned how to not be right and not trust. That's a lot of homework to do in the last three days of your life. So uh, just 
put out the seeds, the pieces. But, you know, once you see the Christ as a corporate concept, a historical concept, which was said in the book of Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega. So the foundation is all given to us. As you, if you got to the chapter on resurrection, you know, resurrection is not a one-time anomaly in the body of Jesus. He is the chapter of the ending of history. Now, where our genera- your generation even was done such a disservice was on books like, what are they? Late Great Planet Earth, uh, Home, not Home Alone. That's a movie. Uh, <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> uh, Left Behind. Left Behind. That's what not Home Alone. Left Behind. to a soul. It was terrible. <laughs> it's about as anti-gospel as you can get. Yes. We were given this hopeful message. A history is ending in resurrection. But again, because we only applied it to Jesus, not to history, we live in a very cynical world where there is no hope. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. And some of the worst people that taught that were evangelical Christians. And evangelical Christians bought it up because they were the remnant. Talk about well-disguised narcissism again. Uh, As long as I'm assured that I'm going to be swept up into the heavens... (laughs) You know, I had Jewish people tell me this about the Noah story. They, they had the courage to self-critique their own script, and they said, Yahweh really flooded and drowned all the women and children on this earth in every continent to save a few people in one little boat? And a Jewish woman said, if that's true, I don't love the Jewish God. Huh? Mm. She just had learned how to read Scripture as an adult. She wasn't throwing out the Noah story. But there's a childish way, a narcissistic way of reading that. Mm. They're the same, really. And there's an adult way of reading that. Beautifully said. We'll we'll close with this. Just a genuine, um, for me, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Not just for the, well, for the personal impact and for allowing us to be students today. I think when we came in, we were like, even the people that have interviewed you are so smart and they can sometimes match you. And we were like, we, we oh, just want to be, it. we want to be us. We want to just ask questions that feel like they're relatable. And you were so kind and humble. No, towards, I wasn't. I just, what else would I do today? I wasn't kind. You had, Thank you. Thank you, you. You say that. I've heard you say that before when you say comedy. So what else would I do? I love what, you know what? We don't have time for that question. I'll do it another time. Um, this one. How, how Oh my God. <laughs> That's my little sister's uh, birthday party. Oh. Let's see, I'm seven and she's five. She's standing there next to me. Oh. Yeah. That photo. Yeah. So how old I, were you there? Seven. I think I'm six or seven. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was so happy as a little boy. That's a beautiful picture, yeah. which well, we'll, thank you. we'll show we'll people so they can see it. <laughs> that you would care enough to, my oh, goodness. That photo uh, melts me. We were all passing it around. Christy oh, sent it to us the other day. And, I was and like, look at me now. But it's wonderful to oh, know that's the, uh, yeah, the soul child, we call it. But you know what's precious is it's such a delight to look at you now. And yeah. I see that I see that little boy in you oh, so you. fully. Thank you. You are both. No one's ever brought that up in a dialogue before. You're very kind. Well, yeah. you know, if you know the anagram, I don't teach it much anymore. That was my earlier life. But some people still identify me with that. According to the soul child theory of the anagram, ones, which is what I terribly am, were sevens when they were little. 
And my parents say, oh, I was the happiest little boy, just screaming with delight about every new thing. When we can't maintain the perfect world that we idealized as a little child, we become just the opposite, sort of school marms, correcting the world. <laughs> and I'm sure that's one reason I became a priest, the wrong reason wow. for becoming a priest. Wow. It would give me a pulpit to save the world. A lot of clergy are ones. And therapists. Oh, oh I bet so, yeah, <sighs> to save the world, yeah. But it's such a joy for me. Thank you for bringing that up. Well, that, to know I wasn't always this way. Well, the, the what uh, we wanted to, to ask in looking at that beautiful little boy is... Uh, Knowing what you know now, um, what's a message you'd want to share with him at that age? Oh, that's so beautiful that you would ask that. Well, what comes to me is don't lose that. I know you've, you've got to leave the garden, but I was still in the garden then. <laughs> and you've got to, yeah. It's not an accident that Adam and Eve left. You have to leave the garden and get wounded. Mm -hmm. So as you know, the, the English word innocent means unwounded. You can't remain innocent. There was one poet that said, one learns one's truth at the price of one's innocence. Maybe, maybe I quote that in Falling Upward. I don't know, I quoted it. It's, one learns one's truth, and people who won't let go of their innocence remain very rigid, yeah. Un untruthful people. They don't know they're untruthful, but there's just whole parts of themselves they can't embrace. So whatever I was embracing at six or seven, I'd tell little Dickie, that's what I was called. When I go back to Kansas, I'm not Richard, I'm Dickie, because uh, my father was Richard. Don't forget it, mm. but I had to forget it. <laughs> and go through the years of angst and and so forth, although I remained pretty innocent and naive up to ordination, mm -hmm. which I was 27. And then I got thrust into the world. Real people, families, children, all the complexities of the human life. As long as I could stay in my isolated Franciscan world, it was idyllic, it was beautiful. I got a magnificent education, uh, but it wasn't real either. Yeah. Yeah, it was too perfect. Well, there's a lot of relevant great teachers of our time, but there's not many that are still putting out their best work. And so thank you for continuing to do what you, you do. You are too kind. Thank you. Make up fake love, make them all laugh. Someone, someone, take off your mask. It's nice to me. Thank y'all so much for being with us today. We know your time is valuable, so it truly means the world to us that you would spend your time and energy with us. And thank you for being willing and open to walk right into the tension of saying the unsaid. The music from our podcast is from one of my favorite bands, Oliver Riot, and this song is called Alcatraz from their EP, Hallucinate. I cannot speak highly enough about these musicians and friends. Check out their beautiful music on Spotify and online. And a huge thank you to Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio who edit and mix the show. If you want to learn more about the Unspoken Podcast, please go to theunspokenpodcast.com for show notes and more information about the guest. And feel free to follow us on Instagram as well at the Unspoken Podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe to keep getting more inspiring conversations with incredible people delivered straight to you. 
And for those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast, please consider supporting the show by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. We can't wait to share with you all of the upcoming conversations with some really special people. And we hope these fill you with the hope that we might all find connection, healing, courage, and the strength to leave no important words unspoken.